Hey there, it's Bailey Hancock, career happiness strategist, creator of The One Year Career, and your host of The Bailey Hancock Show, a podcast that helps people figure out how to make big career moves with small steps. Navigating your career doesn't have to suck. I'm here to help you learn to love the process. Hey guys, Bailey Hancock here. Welcome back to The Bailey Hancock Show. Today we have one of my internet crushes. I'll be honest with you, Lily, you're an internet crush of mine. Um, We have on the show Lily Herman. She's a lot of things, but at the moment, she's a contributing editor at Refinery29, covering news and politics. She's a founder of Rogue Sunday, a digital strategy and marketing firm, and the creator of Get Her Elected, which is a network of over 2,100 people offering their skills pro bono to progressive women candidates running for U.S. office. And she also happens to be one of my favorite Twitter accounts to follow because I get real unbiased, you know, news from her. I, you know, there's a lot of uplifting tweets. There's a lot of what the hell is going on tweets. And I really just appreciate that. So Lily, I'm so excited. Welcome to the party. Oh, thank you. Oh, that was such a nice intro. The ego boost I have now is going to be ridiculous. So I appreciate it's a strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm buttering you up right away. <laughs> I love it. So yeah, I mean, to dive in, like you're clearly a multi-passionate, which is what I consider myself as well. Somebody that has a lot of different interests and maybe they intertwine, maybe they don't. Um, I'm excited to kind of dig into each of your various things that you're doing, but to kick it off, I always like to know what did little Lily want to be when she grew up? Well, very little me wanted to be, it was actually in my, my preschool yearbook, because I guess they have those in preschool, but it said I wanted to be a builder by day and a ballerina by night. Oh my uh, God, so you've been this forever. So this, yeah, so like that did not work out, but I think the indicators that this sort of, yeah, multifaceted career path was going to take place were there as early as three or four. Um, yeah, I actually, it's interesting, I've never really had uh too much of a, a very specific dream. I did in high school uh, for all four years want to be president. Uh, and then ironically, I joined student government as soon as I got to college and absolutely hated it. Um, just what about for, it? Yeah, it was a lot of things. I, I really um, could not stand the amount of time we were spending on incredibly tiny, minute details as opposed to larger change. Uh, the pace of things was just so slow. I remember the second I knew it was not for me was early into my freshman year of college. We spent 45 minutes debating uh, the merits of red lettuce versus green lettuce being added to the vegan section of oh, uh, our school's uh, main dining hall. And, and after that, yeah, once we hit about minute 30, I was like, this is not for me. And then by minute 45, I was absolutely just stunned that we were still on this topic. So, uh, so yeah, so after that, I just, after, yeah, I didn't really have a, a specific goal in mind. Um, and yeah, and then I'm sure we'll talk about this, but the writing sort of, I I sort of fell into it. So, uh, but it was definitely was not a goal early on uh, or anything like that. So what did you go to school for? I studied government and sociology double major. Well, that makes sense. (laughs) And it sounds like, yeah, well, just knowing what I know about what you're up to these days, it's always nice when at least a shred of what you studied in school comes into play because it doesn't always happen. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It, it's played in different ways. I actually tell everyone my sociology degree is way more applicable than my government degree is to what I do now. Uh, I think just being aware of social issues and all these other things has made me better at writing about politics mm -hmm. and has kept me from being a pretty, I think, pretty one-dimensional political writer. Uh, but, but yeah, but it definitely, you know, I get a lot of questions about if I went to journalism school, does Wesleyan, which uh, not to be confused with Wellesley, which is where Hillary Clinton went, but does Wesleyan have a, a journalism school? It does not. Uh, you know, those are the types of things I'm used to getting asked a lot. So, so I think a lot of people, it takes a while to get to, you know, where that, uh, that intersection is of what I studied versus what I do now. But I think it is a little more, or a little bit easier, I should say, uh, now than it was maybe two years ago. Sure. And so with those degrees, what did you think you were going to do with them after? Because obviously you figured out presidential track was not right mm -hmm. for you after student <laughs> government. I completely concur. Everybody's always like, oh, when are you going to run? And I'm like, oh, I could never do that. I'd much rather support the people running who actually have it in them to deal with the bureaucracy, which clearly you feel similarly. But yeah, what did you, did you have anything in mind for how you were going to weave those two together after college? I didn't. I think that's also the big liberal arts thing, especially at a school like Wesleyan. You have a lot of people who major in things that are they're more passionate about than anything else. But I, I think I was definitely I definitely knew going into school I was going to double major because I'm overachieving like that. <laughs> and uh, and I think I I was bouncing around a separate major other than government, which I thought would satisfy my dad's uh, requirement for there to be something sort of applicable sounding. <laughs> uh, and I I was between American studies, anthropology, sociology. Etc. And I just happened to go to an intro sociology class that was phenomenal by a great professor, and uh, and and that was the rest was history. I knew that was my major, so that was. And so you, And I assume, did you take internships? Did you do volunteer work throughout college? That kind of stuff. Yeah, so I was typically working on anywhere from four to six things at once. Um, so I, for instance, I founded what later became the world's largest uh, student-run college access organization called The Prospect. I founded that my freshman year and ran it till my graduation day of college. Uh, I worked at a startup called The Muse as an editorial intern for two years. Yeah, I love, love The Muse. Uh, I still do some work for them now. Uh, I also started working as a campus rep for a women's health startup called Hello Flow, which later became known for their viral Camp Gyno and uh, Camp Gyno ads. What other, what was the other ad? First Moon Party was the other big one that went super viral. Uh, so there was, yeah, there were a lot of things like that. With Hello Flow, I eventually started running their, uh, their uh, blog, which I started from scratch. And later, once it was acquired by She Knows Media, uh, they won a Webby Award based on the editorial strategy I initially laid out. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so a lot of random, there's other stuff, but those were kind of the smattering of different types of things I was always kind of involved in. Uh, and then by the end of my senior year, I was, I was doing writing for Teen Vogue for the last two to three months of college, I started writing for them. So, so yeah, so there's always a lot happening. Yeah, so we're birds of a feather, um, also very way too over-involved in college and kind of bounced around myself, but yeah, a similar track. I was president of the Voices for Planned Parenthood group on campus, Vox, mm -hmm. um, so we were, the, we were the girls who, our people would always be like, oh, Vox, it must be a bunch of you know, sluts, and we're like, actually, most of these people have been with maybe one person, if not zero, and we all just really care about all of you staying safe, you jerks, but thanks, <laughs> yeah. So there's a few themes that jump out, obviously, you know, reproductive rights or health, um, women, careers, what else? I mean, politics, like were all of these sort of 
these different channels your way to explore each of these topics and see which one drew you in? Or were you just like, yes, 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 that's, that sounds good. That sounds good. Because I was a little bit all over the place myself. Yeah, it wasn't really with any goal in mind. It was just whatever I really liked at the time and sounded like a good opportunity. So, um, so pretty much in terms of writing, I've written about everything. I always joke everything except fashion and beauty. I could never write about fashion and beauty because uh, I, I just wouldn't even know where to begin. And I'm not particularly invested in my own fashion or beauty routine. So, uh, so yeah, so I, yeah, I think it was mostly just whatever came along and sounded good. Uh, was, was pretty much how I rolled. Uh, I think what, and what I tell a lot of college students I talk to now or people who are just beginning their, their writing careers is uh, something that I found really great about that is I've written for most verticals now. Mm -hmm. And the good news is if I ever wanted to jump into something, so let's say tomorrow I wanted to go back into career writing, I have, you know, three to four years of experience with that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if I wanted to do more tech writing, I've written, started out as a tech writer for Teen Vogue. Um, so, so yeah, so it, it mostly just comes in handy now. It wasn't really with any sort of specific goal in mind as a, as a 19 year old or an 18 year old, but, uh, but it's really paid off in, in the long run. Uh, but it definitely was not with any sort of intention, which is probably, yeah. it could have been to my detriment, but turned out fine. I don't know. I think it's actually a huge benefit. And I wish more people at that age were willing to be experimental and not so laser focused on the one thing they think is going to be the thing that they pursue in the years going forward. Cause we don't know what the hell we want at 18 and 19. Yeah. And especially now, a lot of the opportunities I have today did not exist when I started college in 2012, 2012. So, uh, so that's also another huge thing that I always remind people of. And you know, if you, you know, I talk to, for instance, a lot of young women who want to go into fashion and beauty writing. And I say, that's great, but that's a really competitive field. And having all these other experiences are really great. And you also never know how they're going to relate. So for example, wearable tech is now really big. So I had a friend who happened to do a lot of tech coverage, had a tech internship somewhere, but really loved fashion and beauty. And so sure enough, when wearable tech came on the scene, she just happened to have the background, the lingo, the contacts to be able to, to take on a lot of that work. Whereas a lot of other people who were doing fashion and beauty writing just had no idea where to even start with discussing, you know, a, a ring that also texts your phone or, you know, an, a, a bracelet that checks your heart rate or whatever. They just didn't even know what that was. So, uh, so yeah, so I think it always kind of works out in weird ways. It totally does. And, and to your point, like, I mean, I graduated college in 2007, which feels like a billion years ago now, and none of this stuff existed. Like yeah. I graduated into the beginning of the recession where it's because of that recession that I think a lot of this does exist now. And we're in the place where we are as a workforce and a society. Um, but it was, it was all brand new. And so I've, I've loved being able to see in the last, you know, 11 or so years, all of these new career paths spring up that you couldn't have imagined them because there was just nothing to base that on. So yeah, following your curiosity and just being passionate and interested in the things that you're working on, I think is the key to really developing a lot of different skills. And so for you, it sounds like, you know, you've constantly been really honing this writing skill of yours and feeding that, but feeding it all different kinds of topics, which, yeah, to your point, allows you to do all these different things that you're doing now, because there might not be one common thread, but the common thread is your curiosity. Absolutely. Yeah, no, definitely. Would definitely agree with that. So with all of those things, that's actually my next question. Like, what else would you say? Is there sort of a common theme, um, whether it is your curiosity or it's, you know, staying on the cutting edge of something? Or is there something that you're aware of that drives you towards these different channels? 
In terms of writing or just in general? Kind of writing and I guess the different projects you've taken on because you have three sort of distinct, I guess, roles right now, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you have others that are, well, I know you have others. You have the newsletter, which I appreciate. (laughs) Um, You know, you have all these different channels, but is there, if you had to look at it overall, is there a common thread between all of these, you know, different activities? Yeah, I'd say most of them nowadays really highlight um, helping marginalized groups in some way, uh, including the newsletter and including a couple other smaller things that I do. Um, But, you know, a lot of my political reporting right now is based around young people and and women and people of color. Uh, My uh, digital strategy marketing firm really targets a a lot of companies. I think just by nature of who I am, a lot of companies uh, with either really progressive liberal founders or companies that have really progressive or liberal missions. Uh, and at the very least, I always joke, you know, we have like a no, a no assholes policy and we, that goes (laughs) for our clients as well. So, uh, so we work with really amazing people who are really changing the world in a lot of different fields and are, are just kind of making things more interesting. Uh, and then similarly get elected, I think it's just an easy one. I mean, we help progressive women get into office. Um, so, so yeah, so I think that's at this point what the aim seems to be. It was not always that thing. I think for a while it was just get more experience, um, you know, have so much stuff on the resume that someone could not ignore or deny me from something. But, uh, but I think that's, that's changed as I have more on my resume and have a little more leeway to choose what I want to do. So, so I think that's, that seems to be what it has uh, shaken out to be as I look look at it now, I guess, from a, a, a much larger view. When you have to do that every so often, you have to pause and look backwards and be like, oh, interesting. Okay, so that played out this way and this played out that way. And, you know, suddenly you find that you do have an, like a career arc and you mm-hmm. have this, you know, commonality that maybe you weren't even intentional about setting, but it's emerged. What was it for you that really, I guess, pushed you forward in these areas? I mean, I can imagine, (laughs) I can guess what it might have been. Perhaps, I don't know, November of 2016. Was there something that really made you say, okay, I need to put a lot of my efforts towards helping be the voice and helping promote people of color and women and marginalized groups? Was there a tipping point there? I don't, I, you know, I think a lot of it started before then. So like I said, I ran this, for example, in college um, from 20, basically early 2013, although it was conceptualized in 2012, um, all the way to 2016, I was running um, a, a, an entire organization dedicated to underserved high school students. So for instance, that was already a theme even before then. I did a ton of other service work in high school and whatnot. So, um, and, and then on campus as well at Wesley and I was involved with, you know, SAT prep and college counseling for, for other underserved youth in the area and all this other stuff. So I think all that, all of that was there. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think at the same time, what's really important is that even starting back in high school, I was a total Tumblr kid. So the idea of, online community building and digital organizing was still really new back in that day, um, going all the way back to the late 2000s, early 2010s. But, um, but I, I think I was gathering skills, even if they weren't necessarily with this specific lens I have now. Uh, but yeah, I think a lot of it coalesced even before the election. I think just with I mean, even before election day, I should say, I think just with the primaries, even before the primaries, you know, you're watching all this stuff go on. I was on an incredibly politically charged campus for four years. So I was aware of issues. I was involved in other campus wide efforts and other things going on there. Um, You know, I was already doing work with HelloFlow and all these these other places that were trying to promote, um, uh, you know, education and advancement for for various marginalized groups. Uh, But I think, yeah, a lot of things coalesced. You know, I think it was too, um, people look at that work differently now. So I think, 
I think a huge life lesson for me is that a lot of my work or who I am has been uh, perceived very differently based on where I am, who I am at the time. So being the outspoken liberal kid in your very conservative high school is, is very different than it is now when you're, you know, in your twenties and we're living in this era and you're doing all this work. I think I, like I said, I was already doing the work. Um, I think Teen Vogue's a great example. I was writing their political coverage for months and months and months before the actual election came around in November of 2016. So just all of a sudden people were paying attention, which was odd because um, I, I was just sitting there doing it. Yeah. Uh, there, were, there were some days where I was writing anywhere from 40 to 70% of their politics and news content on any given weekday. So the weird thing was just that, like I said, I was already doing that, but over literally virtually overnight, people took notice. So I think that's, um, that's been kind of weird, but also really empowering and really inspiring. And I think it's opened up a lot of different opportunities and, and um, just, just meeting a lot of different types of people and all of that. But, but I think, yeah, it's definitely been a lot of different stuff that I think, yeah, coalesced around the election. Uh, and then now I think everyone's getting so energized for the midterms. That's sort of opening up a whole other um, kind of group of people and, and ideas and, and opportunities. So that's been really, really, I think really interesting above all, uh, just kind of watching that reaction change over the years. But uh, I mean, yeah. it feels, it feels like it changes week to week anymore. Sometimes, you know, suddenly people care, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but it is funny because for people like you who have been at this for a long time, and this mm -hmm. is not a new development in your life. This is something that you've been at for a very long time. Um, it's got to feel, I, I would probably feel slightly conflicted in some respects. I think part of me would be like, well, cool. Welcome to the party guys. <laughs> We've been at, this is not a new problem, but at the same time, you're like, yes, also welcome to the party. We need all the help we can get. Yeah. And I think especially as, as a young white woman, it's, it's sort of for me, I'm like, I get it. My opportunity here is to educate other white women who might be intimidated by these issues. I have a lot of friends, for instance, who are very apolitical, who I've drafted into get her elected or into other stuff I'm doing. And I get that I'd prefer for them to uh, me to deal with them than to have someone who's even, you know, a lot more seasoned than me have to explain very basic concepts to them. So it's fine for me to just kind of sit down and explain what's going on or what's up. But, uh, but yeah, it definitely, it definitely is sort of weird when um, people I didn't even imagine were who, who were, weren't particularly interested or even were a little bit adversarial suddenly care a lot. Uh, I think especially coming from, I come from Jacksonville, Florida. Oh, which, I'm a Floridian. Uh, I'm oh, from Sebastian. Oh, okay. Okay. So, yeah. Yep. I, you, what town is near Sebastian? Vero Beach and Melbourne. And then isn't, is that, is there a town that begins... No, Melbourne's what I'm thinking of. Okay. Um, I used to go to a lot of crew regattas in the Melbourne area. So I was trying to remember what else was around there. But yes, you, yes, that, that East Coast, Florida, very different from West Coast, Florida. Yes, but, it is. Uh, well, and yeah. I'm, in, I'm in LA now and it couldn't be more different. It's yes. a planet, basically. <laughs> Yes. So, so yeah, so I think uh, what's, yeah, what's been kind of fascinating, for instance, is people from Jacksonville who are now either were apolitical and became very political or uh, were, were I, I jokingly call them closeted Democrats and then suddenly are like out there, you know, tweeting all the things about how much they hate Republicans yeah. and, and all these things. And, uh, and some of like just people who call themselves Republicans are now pretty upfront with the fact that they had no political views and were just regurgitating their parents' views. I mean, that's to me fascinating. But uh, it, yeah, that's what I think has been the most interesting is sort of having to take a long deep sigh and remembering some of those people not being very nice, politically speaking to me uh, in 
in middle school or high school and now being like, okay, we're on the same side now. <laughs> like I have to, yeah. I have to just kind of take a deep breath and, and, you know, move on and help them in whatever they're, they're well, and everybody, exactly. Everybody comes to things when they are supposed to, right. Yeah. Everybody kind of arrives to the same conclusion at different times. And yeah, this world is very fascinating right now because I think I always assumed growing up that most people's beliefs were their beliefs and that was that. And you were either one or the other. And being really involved on campus in college with Planned Parenthood, I got to see that pretty, you know, I had a front row seat to people being like, no, you're either, you know, pro-choice or you're not. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no changing their minds, so don't bother. But I think we're in such a different time now where with the right information and the mm -hmm. right level of empathy, I think empathy is such a key factor in not changing minds or swaying people, but opening up people's minds to different sides. Um, the Twitter, I hate Twitter most days. I think nine times out of 10, it makes me feel bad and not good, but mm -hmm. I still go on because it's one of the last places digitally in my life where there are a lot of opinions that are super different than my own. And it, it kind of allows me to see that things that feel very obvious to me are not at all mm -hmm. um, what a lot of other people actually feel and think. So I think it's good to always know what the other end of the spectrum is thinking and saying, mm -hmm. um, but it is very frustrating to be like- Oh yeah, totally. And even, even on the side of people who consider themselves liberal, I mean, there's so much difference, but I think, you know, as much as everyone talks about Twitter in terms of like, you know, the alt-right versus like incredibly left-leaning progressives as those two separate ends of a spectrum, I also, I am also really inspired by a lot of people who just have much more interesting, um, you know, well-informed arguments than me that are on, I would say, or believe in the same things I do. And there's so many arguments that I had not even thought of that I'm like, thank goodness I'm following this person on Twitter because they say stuff that makes me actually think about it. Or maybe even though I agree with them, they're saying, hey, yes, you might agree, but you know, here's another way to think about this. I mean, just to bring up a random issue that I think has been getting a lot of traction recently is like marijuana legalization. Mm -hmm. Very different view for a lot of reasons. And you can still say, yes, I want marijuana legalized, but your reasons why can very much vary <laughs> depending on who you're talking to and their background. So we can all want the same thing, but the reasons why and what the implications of, of your reasoning why is, is, I think, a big deal. And that's, again, it's, it's important, even though if you say, like, yes, I agree with someone, it's to say, but why, why are we both agreeing on this? And, yeah, like, is their intention better than mine? Is, is mine a little bit problematic? Like, what's the deal there? Um, I think any, you know, any issue, regardless of how, you know, hyper- charged it is or not. Uh, I think that that's also what I've loved about Twitter and, and just loved about the internet and digital communities and all that is just getting to hear those um, different, I guess, dimensions to an issue has been, I think, invaluable for me as a writer and, and as someone who does a lot of volunteer work and all this other stuff. Uh, that's just been super, super helpful just to know how many different ways to look at something there really are. Oh my gosh. Well, it's such a good life lesson, right? Politics or otherwise, it's knowing that there are so many shades of, of opinions under one, one overall thought, like you're saying, mm -hmm. is, is really good to know. And it just, the reason why I love meeting as many people as I can is because mm -hmm. every new interaction is a chance to collect data on what mm -hmm. other people think, right? And mm -hmm. other people's experiences and why people have come to the decisions that they've come to in their lives. And it's fascinating mm -hmm. to me I'm always open to change my mind. I love a good argument against what I think I know to be true. And 
I think that I'm secure in that, you know, thought on. Um, cause again, it just, it unpeels a new layer of, of a topic or many topics that you might've thought was a closed book. Like you're like, Nope, I know my answer to that one. I know how I feel about it done. And then you get a good argument going to your point, And it's like, actually, maybe I hadn't considered all those scenarios. Exactly. Yeah. The problem is Twitter is so loud and full of voices that to find those thoughtful arguments is challenging. Yeah, I'm pretty selective, I think, which surprises a lot of people in terms of who I follow. And like whenever I give my list of like who my favorite Twitter accounts are, it's always a bizarre mix. But I it's, it's people who I think are just typically a mix of of humorous, open minded, yet also very strong in their own, whatever their 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 central compasses, they know what that is and what they're following. Uh, so, but yeah, but it's, it's sort of fascinating which voices you have to listen to. Also, obviously, because those people are more outspoken, they deal with a lot more harassment. I follow a lot more women than men. So again, deal with a lot of harassment and, and other bullying, other issues online. So, so I think it's sort of this bizarre trade-off, but, but yeah, and a lot of times, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to follow them, but you also have to cut through the noise around them, which is yeah. difficult. So that's yeah. what I find really challenging about Twitter is I, I curate who I follow, but I still end up with a lot of hate and garbage on my feed because of who they follow. How do you avoid yeah. that? Like, how have you, cause obviously you spend a lot of time on the platform and it's mm -hmm. so ingrained in what you do across all fronts. Yeah. How do you keep it from bogging you down? I think it's just about taking breaks and like, it, it, I would say doing things in moderation. Um, so for instance, last week I had a really busy work week where I had to focus on actual work. So I just straight up did not log on to Twitter. I sort of in the morning tweeted out the articles I had been reading over the past day and wanted to tweet out and then otherwise didn't really engage till night. Um, so I think that's important. This past weekend during Memorial Day weekend, I just basically took off most of the weekend. Uh, and that was just super, super nice just to sit there and sleep, watch my TV, hang out by myself, do my reading, you know, et cetera. Um, but I think that's the biggest thing. And also just not being afraid to block people, not being afraid to mute people, not being afraid to mute conversations. Even if things are really positive, it can still be very overwhelming. Yeah. Just have all that chatter, even if it's good. Um, so I, I've just found to be, to not to feel upset or bad for having to do that. Like it's not necessarily a test of your own like mental abilities if you it's need self-preservation. Exactly. And also I, I remember Roxanne Gay, I think, put it best. She was someone was yelling about her blocking people and she's like, you're not paying me for my thoughts and this isn't my job. So I was like, yes, Roxanne, <laughs> that's how I feel about it. So it's like, if you want to pay me for things then I block you, that's a different story. But you are not paying me for these thoughts on this platform. So like if you want to hand me a dollar per tweet, we'll happily reconsider. But until that day, you know, uh, you know, similarly, I, I dislike uh, publications that have all these rules for social media, but at least they're trying to make the argument that we pay you so you should follow what we say. I can at least understand that argument, even though I disagree with it. But, mm -hmm. you know, it, on Twitter, though, it's just sort of like, why I don't owe you anything in that mm. respect. So, and similarly, I don't, um, I also just personally don't understand people who feel the need to like go on to other people's accounts and, and straight up say like, I disagree. I'm like, oh, okay. That's never occurred to me. That's never occurred to me. I also make, I have a really intense point about, um, 
I never punched down. So I never got really, I never really quote tweet random people and go after them. Um, I never go after especially young women, writers or editors. That's a huge point of my sticking point of mine is never go after other people. You know, I'll make fun of Chris Saliza from CNN because he totally deserves it as terrible. Uh, but he's obviously has a way bigger platform and audience and it is on a different professional level than me, even if I do not understand why. But, um, but you know, I'm not, I think that's also really important is, is having, setting your boundaries, but also understanding your rules and why those, those are there. Um, I think that's also helped me avoid a lot of strain is, is, you know, I don't really get into Twitter fights that often unless there's a real reason and unless someone has really over, you know, crossed over a line, if they're trying to attack something about me personally, where I know they don't know the information and they're spreading some sort of actual falsehood or, or untruth about my life, but that rarely, rarely happens. So, you know, I just don't see a reason to, to go after people or, or anything like that. Yeah, I have a really hard time not getting involved because it feels so intense when you're on there. I have a, I have a tendency yeah. to like go down Twitter rabbit holes of these threads where I'm like, right, these can't be, these can't be real people, right? They've got to be bots. Mm -hmm. They've got to be just the whole troll thing is arguably one of the saddest things I think to happen to our society is Twitter trolls and trolls in general, you know, whatever mm -hmm. happened when I was growing up, trolls were cute. They had little gems in their bellies and wild <laughs> hair. And I really yeah. preferred those to these because the idea that people take pleasure in stoking a fire and saying something just to get a rise as, out of people that feels like the opposite of humanity and the opposite of what we should be doing, the opposite of constructive anything. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Oh, totally. And I think those types of people have always existed. It's just so infuriating that they have such an easy platform nowadays. Uh, you know, and I think that's the biggest thing too about this era is realizing that everything that we're dealing with already existed. It's just amplified and, and packaged in a different way. And that's what's I think also frustrating about it is, is sort of sitting there saying it didn't just all appear on November 9th, <laughs> like yeah. in the early, the wee hours, it was, it was way before then. Um, but, but yeah, but I think that's also what's something that can get very, very grating at times and very, like I said, infuriating. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to not feed the trolls, but it's also, it feels like, well, if, if we're not, you know, fighting back, are they winning? Are they, mm -hmm. you know, do they think they're winning? And I guess none of it really matters, but you know, that kind of brings me to get her elected because I feel like that's such a direct response to the underrepresentation of women mm -hmm. in politics and really us, the opposite of trolls, right? Which mm -hmm. is, well, let's support, let's amplify the messages that we mm -hmm. believe in, let's contribute, let's not mm -hmm. tear down, let's build up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell me, so how did that get started and, and what's the latest with it? What's the future? Yeah, so I think similar to my, my career and especially political writing, this, yeah, I was involved with politics way earlier than the, the 2016 election. Um, I had volunteered for campaigns. I had done some work for campaigns, uh, you know, had supported a lot of different causes. And what I had noticed over time was that a lot of these places were, you know, you can go down the list of, there's amazing organizations helping women run. So there's Emily's List, She Should Run, Emerge America, uh, Vote Run Lead, the list goes on and on. So the biggest thing I want to say is those, those organizations are doing incredible work. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of them were really just trying to fix the pipeline issue of, okay, women are saying they don't feel like they know where to get the resources just to run or to be inspired to run, we're going to provide them very great, important work to be doing. Uh, the big problem that I found from talking to women who did run, who either both went through these organizations and did it on their own, was that uh, a lot of them were stunned that they were sort of left to fend for themselves as soon as they filed to run. You know, the, the part of a lot of these organizations, it sort of ends with the women officially filing. So they can say, you know, 
we got someone to run, that's great. So again, I'm not saying those organizations aren't doing incredible work, but there's just different parts of this pipeline that need to be solved. You know, there's so many different elements that need to be thought about. So they're trying to fix just getting women in into that pipeline. I'm listening there watching this happen again for years and years and saying, okay, so why aren't we helping make sure these women um, who have, especially first-time candidates who don't, you know, especially going up against an incumbent mm-hmm. um, or not having any sort of incumbent advantage, they're women. Um, a lot of times also we think about women of color or women with disabilities or moms, you know, working moms. There's all these different things that can lead to uh, age, you know, ageism, all these issues that lead to women having such a hard time, you know, getting fundraising going, um, you know, getting, assembling a really great team to help them out, things like that. So, so yeah, so I think overall that's where the idea came from. Uh, after the election, I sort of sat on it and I, I was thinking here, so I'm from Jacksonville. I live in New York City now. Um, New York City has plenty of problems, but I would say Jacksonville has a very different and much more intense set of issues. So, uh, so I, mean, I, I feel like, you, I live in California and I'm like, I feel like my vote's a bit of a waste here. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, I understand. I'm really excited. New York politics is really heating up this, especially in 2018. So I'm yeah. stoked, but, uh, but yeah, but I was like, okay, Jacksonville has some bigger problems in things that I care about. So, um, but I obviously it makes no sense for me to fly to Jacksonville to help out candidates down there or something like that. So what can I do for my home, especially with my busy schedule and the skills I have to offer? So I thought, oh, there must be an organization where I can offer my skills pro bono to candidates and they'll match me up and that'll be that. Um, So I went searching for like a month or a month and a half. Um, I didn't, I'm a big proponent of not creating something when it already exists. I absolutely, I hate when activists do this. It happens all the time. And like the people with the best intentions do this all the time. So I was like, I don't want to restart something that already exists. There's too much overlap. And then we're all dividing and, you know, not conquering. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, so I went searching, didn't find anything, contacted a couple of friends who worked for some of these orgs that help women get inspired to run for office and help them with the initial steps. And the best I could find was that some of these orgs had volunteer lists, but lists, but they weren't very developed. They weren't really well thought out. There was no system to them. Um, so at first, Get Our Elected was actually, I didn't want, I'm also not a big fan of starting something with these huge implications or this like universal power of, you know, whatever. That also bothers me when people are like, oh, I'm going to change the world with my tiny organization. So I said, okay, I just want to start an organization that helps set up these different progressive organizations that already are helping women and maybe offer volunteers to them. Mm. So I sent out a tweet at some point, I think in late 2016 or very, very early 2017, that literally just said, hey, if you wanna offer your your skills pro bono to, like, I don't think I even said progressive, I think I said liberal women candidates running for office, email me. I thought, oh, I'd get a group of like 15, 20 people together, present it to, these organizations call it a day. Um, I got 80, like eight zero emails from that one tweet. So, uh, so yeah. And then I started getting tons of, you know, my friend forwarded me this email, like, huh, can you add me to your list? Uh, so like, shit, I guess I should create a list. (laughs) I was like, Oh no. The other big roadblock was that a lot of these organizations, um, were not really getting back to me or taking me seriously in terms of this org. Now, again, I do not hold this against them whatsoever. If you recall, uh, January to probably like April, May of 2017 was the most overwhelming experience for these orgs. You had Emily's List claiming that, you know, in their banner year, uh, 960 women candidates had announced they're running for office in in 2016. The new record was like 25,000 candidates in like nine months or something just nutty like that. Where So I 
at this point, I completely am not at all upset. I get it. Uh, I would not be able to keep up with those those numbers or emails either. So, so yeah, so basically I shifted strategy uh, and started saying, well, there's a lot of candidates who won't really be endorsed by something like Emily's List. Maybe they're running for local office or, or what have you. Why don't I go after them and see if they need help? Uh, and so sure enough, um, that ended up being a, a better strategy. We had a couple of really great women candidates or, or just staffers who took us really seriously at the beginning, which was super helpful, um, forever indebted to them. So, uh, so yeah, so now we're working with, I think, 220, 230 women candidates. Um, they're running for everything from local school board or local city council or other kind of local offices all the way up to um, U.S. House of Representatives and U.S. Senate. Uh, and yeah, it's been, it's been good, but it, you know, it's funny now because now that we, you know, we have the numbers in terms of volunteers and candidates, uh, everyone starts coming around again. So, so that's also been, an, I think, an interesting phase. I think nowadays, um, Something that's been interesting to balance is that, uh, you know, trying to do volunteer work for primaries is a little different or candidates want things a lot faster than I'm able to do them, mm -hmm. considering that I'm running this with just a little bit of extra help and it's a, still a volunteer thing on top of my full-time other work. So, uh, so that's also been interesting trying to figure out what our new normal is in terms of what do we do when all these people are heading towards primaries and how, do we, how are we going to shift strategies come especially September, uh, after mid-September is pretty much the last of the primaries. So, what will that look like then? I have no idea. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's sort of what what I've been I've been I've been sort of running towards or leading towards. Um, but we also do yeah. People have asked, uh, you know, what are we doing after twenty eighteen? Um, you know, we have candidates. It's never running. enough. <laughs> it's never yeah, enough to yeah. Doing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I honestly, do, you know, we have a couple of different options in terms of what we want to do. But we do have candidates who are running in twenty nineteen and twenty twenty. So it's not like you know we're suddenly going to abandon them, but. Uh, but in terms of growth or, or all those fun words, I have no idea what's going to happen uh, come November 7th, the morning of November 7th, where hopefully uh, some of our work has paid off. <laughs> hopefully but, you're uh, dealing with a massive hangover from like a celebratory night instead of the alternate. <laughs> exactly. I can only hope and dream uh, at that point. So we, we shall see. Yeah. It's funny you say that, you know, before the the impetus was like getting women to run and then they were kind of on their own. It feels so similar to this whole childbirth thing, right? Like everybody wants you to have the kid, but then as soon as you decide to, there's no support for you. And it's like, no, oh, you got to figure it out now. People are always leaving women to the wolves, man. Stuff out here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's total, you know, double standard, awful, awfulness, uh, I would say overall, but yeah, so that, that's it. But it, you know, and I, and I hope, you know, get elected is a pretty, I think pretty, temporary and not amazingly amazing universal fix to the this part of the pipeline problem so i'm hoping that it gets replaced with something uh, much more sturdy and steadfast and and long term uh but the hope here though is people are saying oh well first of all some sort of you know matching system can work um i hope someone's able to automate it to a, a better point um and then from there just you know building something else that's a little more sustainable or saying people asking the bigger questions of how do we actually support uh, specifically first-time women candidates who are running because those are the ones that we are primarily overall helping uh, along with maybe some candidates who are running for bigger offices so uh so so yeah so it's it's just i think a question of people actually saying okay here's the issue. We're really ready to solve it. Here's what people have been doing. Here's what has and hasn't, has and has not worked. And here's what we need to do to actually make this sustainable for the long term. Uh, I think those are the questions that still, still need to be answered and then solved for. So, so, sure, yeah, so but at least, at least you're doing something. And I think, yeah, 
that's the most important piece here is so many people with good intentions sit on ideas because they don't have all the pieces together. It's the same with careers. I see it yeah. constantly. People don't feel 100% prepared, so they don't make any change and they don't do anything to like get themselves even a little bit closer to that destination that they think they might want to go in. And mm -hmm. what I appreciate about, or appreciate about um, this and you in general is you just sort of do it. You know, you don't waste time overthinking it and trying to perfect something. And you recognize that it can always be better and it can always improve. And hell, if somebody else wants to come in and make it better, go for it. You know? Yeah. It's not, I, it's, yeah. this is not like a revolution, you know, get her like, it's not a re revolutionary idea. Anything I do, I, I'm never like, I'm here to reinvent the wheel or create you don't have to disrupt everything. I know. I'm not here to yell about disruption at people. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not some great Silicon Valley founder. Uh, but yeah, no, I think, I think in general, yeah, I, I love the motto done is better than perfect. And that's honestly true for 90% of things. Uh, so I think that's helped. But I think also, you know, I've gotten used to the fact that about out of the, you know, one idea that works out that people see, there are at least 12 that did not work out for every one of those. So, so everyone looks at Getter Elected and goes, oh, that's amazing. But do they know that I tried to start a volunteer newsletter for New York City in November of 2016? That completely, I just never Never, I don't think I even sent like one newsletter off of it. No, they do not, but no one cares. So, you know, yeah. so it's, it's stuff like that. And I think getting people to buy into your enthusiasm. I have a lot of people who follow my Twitter, subscribe to a bunch of my newsletters, subscribe to Get Elected. I have people who also that I ended up hiring for Rogue Sunday who initially started as followers of things I did. So I think getting people to buy into this, the kind of, I think, you know, ethos of what you're doing is I think a, a bigger thing. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's much more important, but I think also just, yeah, it's not a, it's not a particularly um, aspirational story in the sense that, yeah, I failed a lot. There's been, there's been a lot of failures. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff that just didn't work out. Um, and, and I think, yeah, coming to terms with that is totally fine. And I think that's also, you know, gotten to a point now where if things don't work out. People kind of understand it's not that big of a deal. Uh, or if things just aren't the most important thing all the time, that's also not that big of a deal. Um, get her elected like anything else goes through ebbs and flows. Mm -hmm. uh, Rogue Sunday's a business, so it needs to have more, <laughs> more of those sort of uh, big, big moments. But, uh, but there's still a lot of just work that needs to get done. I think that's the other thing too, is all this stuff is work. There's, um, mm. it's not very glamorous to send hundreds of emails to volunteers or candidates or spend time on calls, explain the same five things over to, to candidates because their campaign manager is new and they need to hear it too, or they have some new communication staffer who needs to hear it. Um, same with writing. Writing is not particularly glamorous a lot of the time, but 99.9% of the time, um, you know, digital marketing, there's a lot of tweet writing that needs to happen or, or you know, or creating graphics in Canva or on Photoshop. Uh, it's all just sort of, you know, the, the real work is, is hard. Um, but I think there are a lot of really, really great moments that, that make it all worth it. Well, so you said a few things. So one of the things I want to talk about is this being okay with failure and recognizing mm -hmm. that for every good idea, there's probably 10 to 15 that didn't pan out. How mm -hmm. do you, how do you continuously have the stamina? Because I think you either are that kind of person or you're not, or maybe that muscle can be massaged and, and strengthened over time, but it's definitely a talent being able mm -hmm. to not take everything that doesn't work out personally. How do you mm -hmm. do it? How do you continuously come back to the drawing board and be okay trying something new again? I honestly don't know. I've always been that way. Again, going back to like who I was as a really young kid, my mom is always like, you wanted to do everything all the time. She's, you know, of course annoyed and was tired. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know, I think that though, it's so funny. I just gave a TEDx talk at my alma mater uh, back in early April. And the, the name of that talk was Don't Treat Your Work as Precious. Uh -huh. And I think, 
Yeah, and the whole point of it was essentially, I was told my sophomore year of high school by an English teacher that I was a terrible writer. So I had no, I had no thoughts that I would become a writer. There's no writers or, or journalists or media people in my family. There's no indication I would be in this career path. And the question I had is for this TED Talk was, why did I end up being a writer making a living off of my work when so many people I grew up with who were, you know, the innately talented writer types, why did they all either not pursue this career or completely flame out so early? And I think a large part of it was I had had zero ego about my writing. And to this day, I had no ego. I mean, yeah, right now I'm dealing today with a ton of uh, edits for a large feature that's coming out later this week. Um, and I, I'm just like, cool. Okay. I'm just going to grind through these. You know, I have no, I'm not sitting there saying like, they didn't understand my, you know, right. how my beautiful, refined, cherished work. It's just sort of like, okay, these are words. I'm going to slash them now. Yeah. I have to add in this fact check thing and get rid of this thing. Like whatever, they'll deal. Um, and I think that's honestly really helped because similarly, I just don't treat anything like it's that precious. And I think coming to an understanding when anything starts that one day it will come to an end or it will change or it will not be the brilliant thing you think you're creating, that's totally fine. And I think that's, um, you know, that's, that's helped me kind of move on from things. That's helped me not get too upset when people don't love something I do off the bat or, or it doesn't catch on or whatever. It's just sort of like, there'll be more ideas. And quite frankly, like a lot of them will be pretty bad and then get better. So, you know, uh, so, so yeah, so I think it's just sort of, um, I think that's the, the most important thing, honestly, to do anything long-term or, or really start a, a, I think a career you're fulfilled with is just not treating anything like it's so um, important that it could not ever be broken or, or that you <sighs> passed it. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's so, 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 so important. And maybe one of the top three ways to stay happy in your career, I think is not being precious about your work and recognizing yeah. that there is no wrong decision in your career mm -hmm. in life. There are decisions that probably at the time are better or worse than others, but every decision, every act, every failure, every success is a data point. Mm -hmm. It's information. It, you learn from it, you grow from it, you move on, and you recognize that like, there will be others, good and bad. And mm -hmm. you know, if I've learned anything from this podcast, um, I think your interview number maybe 40-something for this mm -hmm. year, and everybody has a career dip. Everybody has a massive failure. Everybody has a moment in their life where they're like, well, I'm going to die now. And then they don't. And you know, they come out stronger for it. And every decision and every big dip going forward is easier to digest and easier to move past because you know that you can. And I think, you know, if you only have maybe one or two major failures in your life, they're all going to mm -hmm. still feel really big. But to your point about having to be edited a mm -hmm. lot, that's constant, not failures, but tweaking and coaching and it's constant criticism. And it's, constant. it's gotten to the point where it's, un, it's in understanding what I'm going to let stick with me. For example, I cannot tell you any of the things I just edited for this piece that I just spent an hour and a half editing. Like I'm, nothing stuck with me in terms of like, done. yeah, as soon as the edits were done, I understood what, you know, I, I kind of learned from it. I was like, okay, what, what were the general takeaways here? Maybe like fact check this kind of thing a little more, do that. But overall I couldn't, you know, nothing stuck with me as like, the the comment or criticism I got it was just like okay Lily you need to do those things um and you know there are things I'm constantly working on because I know I know they're, they're they're kind of points of improvement but um but yeah to this at this point I honestly can't remember a lot of the criticism I received from most people I think for instance this English teacher's comment from a decade ago stands out because I just never received anything like that in my life whereas now well, it was probably the first it was the first like the first wait, it was yeah, and it was such a deep cut, whereas now I've been told by Twitter trolls that I'm a terrible writer, and I'm like, great, this teacher told me that a decade ago. She is 10 years ahead of you, so <laughs> this does not really original. 
yeah, it's sort of like, okay, like I've heard this before, uh, and it stung a lot more. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I think that's definitely, I think and most of my friends who are in a similar, I think, capacity or do that sort of constant iteration of things, um, they, they similarly, I, they couldn't tell you, like, they can probably remember the one or two big, yeah, like insults or really bad criticism they got, but day to day, no one, you know, I don't sit around like remembering who said what or who did yeah. what or, you know. You don't have a list on your wall? <laughs> no, no, no list in, no lists in the apartment. Um, but yeah, honestly could not tell you what I edited today. What other, you know, I had clients who sent me some feedback. Couldn't, you know, obviously as soon as I finished it, it got sent off and I don't remember it now whatsoever. So uh, it's such a good life lesson to learn as soon as possible because it, it frees you up. I think when people are hesitant with creating or putting something out into the world or taking risks, really what you're doing is being selfish to the world. You're mm -hmm. withholding whatever you've got in you, you know, at the, just the risk of potentially not having it liked by somebody or, or having it not go the way you expected. Mm -hmm. When really, like, what if it was successful? What if it did great? What if a million people loved it? You won't know until you pull the trigger and it gets easier every single time. Exactly. Exactly. Amazing. Well, so to wrap up, I'm just curious, like of all the things that you're doing right now and the way that you're doing them and, and as you're seeing your own career take shape and change, um, which by the way, I didn't realize you were a solid nine years younger than me. And now I feel like a huge <laughs> failure, but that's neither here nor there. Um, what is it about your career right now that you're most excited about or that, that really feeds you the most? Oh, goodness. I don't know. That changes every day, honestly. So I think that's the good thing is I think right now I have such variety. Um, I think, yeah, I worked full time in college on top of going to school full time. So I think it's been nice to see the fruits of all that labor and, and my post-grad work pay off to where, you know, I'm starting to get projects that are dream projects or would have been dream projects for me when I was 18 or like, just, I think having options is really nice, both in terms of what I get to do today, day to day, but then also the opportunities that come to me. So I think that's been really energizing is not feeling like, yeah, like I also talked to a lot of, you know, uh, college seniors who are graduating and now recent grads who are just feel kind of stuck. And it's, it's nice to not feel necessarily stuck. Like there's always kind of new stuff happening or things to look forward to. Or if I really wanted to do a, you know, career 180, I feel like I could, uh, I don't have an interest in doing that, but, uh, but yeah, but I think, I think having those options open is really, really refreshing. And um, I think really inspiring to, to me just to see um, what comes next, what, you know, what challenge I could take on next. I think that's been really, really great. Yes. Speaking of that, is there anything on your kind of, career roadmap or like your, we'll say career vision board, if you will. Is there anything that's on that list that you don't know when you're going to get to it, but you know you want to eventually? I don't even know. Like, I, I honestly, like, I don't even have like a three-year plan, a two-year plan. I, you know, the stuff I'm doing now, I couldn't have even dreamed of when I graduated from college. I so think those plans are overrated. Yeah. So I have no idea if there's anything. I, I think also the fact that I don't have any sort of like magnum opus project in mind, I think that's also helped because I'm not like one track minding it. So I wish yeah, I had a better flexible. No, yeah, that, I wish that I is the answer. answer. It's, yeah. It's just that sort is. of like, Whatever, whatever comes up and sounds great and I think is a fun opportunity that, you know, I think helps me and doesn't hurt me, then I, I'm, I'm down to take it. So Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. super excited to see what you do next and I'll subscribe to all of your newsletters. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. There's like 87 already, of them. I already I think I've got all of them covered, but yeah. there might be a few that I haven't unturned yet. But I, yeah, I'm so thankful for you and the work that you do and your spirit and all of this that you've got going on. I think the world needs it and wants it. And I'm grateful to get to watch you do it along the side. 
Oh, well, thank you. I can. I appreciate the ego boost here in the midst of uh, in the midst of all the work. So, uh, hey, so girl. Really. I'm always a good hype girl. So <laughs> I will retweet your shit left and right, and know that I'm throwing up <laughs> real life praise emoji hands for you on the other side Love of it. my laptop. All right. Well, we will link to all of your things in the show notes. Everybody, definitely go check it out. Um, I think there's so much that we can all contribute, and luckily, Lily has a few different ways that we can actually <laughs> help do that. So. Thank you again, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you.